I think history has proven that they are very efficient. It does work, it has a large public health uh, impact and it does have considerable impact on on consumer behaviour. In 2018, the UK launched its soft drinks industry levy. This was a new tax to increase the cost of drinks with more than 8 grams of sugar per 100 mils by 24 pence per litre and 18 pence per litre for drinks which had more than 5 grams per 100 mils. Now this was introduced on the back of some evidence from other countries that it substantially reduced the population's intake of sugar by changing consumer behaviour and by causing manufacturers to change their formulation. The idea that that, in turn, would reduce the BMI of the country and the problems associated with obesity. So in the face of that, new research just published on BMJ.com asks, what if that tax was extended to include other sugary foods? I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. And to find out if it would, I'm joined by one of the authors of that study. Pauline Schilbeek is Assistant Professor in Nutritional and Environmental Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Pauline, thanks for coming in and talking to us on the podcast. Yeah, I'm very glad to be here. Thanks. Um, so this is a really interesting um, modelling study you've done here, looking at a 20% increase on in the price of high sugar snacks. So we've heard a lot about sugar levies on things like fizzy drinks, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages. But this one, you've decided to sort of broaden that into all sugary foods. Why is that? Well, the UK does have quite a unique profile if it comes to uh, consumption of free sugars uh, in our our diets. Uh, So uh, definitely in the UK, uh, uh, the contribution of uh, high sugar snacks to total uh, consumption of free sugars is much higher than that of uh, sugar-sweetened beverages. And in other countries where such uh, sugar levy has been introduced, for example, in the US and in Mexico, uh, the ratio of that is quite different. So the the amount of uh, free sugars uh, consumed through uh, sugar-sweetened beverages is much higher in the UK as com- uh, in the US uh, in uh, comparison to uh, high sugar foods uh, if you compare that with the UK. Mm, I never knew that it's uh, it's almost surprising. We, we do like our cakes and our yeah. biscuits for sure. <laughs> we definitely do if you were up in our office at the moment you would see that is exactly <laughs> true. Um, so this is all about high sugar snacks. Um, how much sugar is high sugar? What are we talking about here? So for this study, which is um, focusing specifically on the UK, we looked at uh, um, what you could call non-essential sugary uh, foods that are quite commonly eaten by the UK population. So this is confectionery, and that includes also chocolates, uh, cakes, uh, biscuits and cookies. Uh, And we have classified them as um, snacks that you can kind of buy on the go, um, uh, perhaps when you're uh, walking to the station uh, or um, uh, when you are uh, commuting to to work, uh, which you don't need any utensils for. Uh, So Uh, so, um, snacks that are uh, quite easily to to consume. So you're not talking about like a tub of ice cream in the supermarket here. This is more like 
no. something that you you uh, have on the go. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so um, there have been uh, similar fiscal interventions in uh, in other countries in in Europe and uh, and also in, in in North and Central America uh, where they classify these as non non essential foods because they have high uh, sugar um, contents and uh, very limited other nutritional uh, value than that. Hmm. So p- potentially cakes that we mentioned at the beginning you eat with a fork does that count in there? <laughs> yeah so we we specifically um uh, selected uh, slices or pieces of uh, a cake and not like entire cakes that that are uh, uh, to share for example with your family or your friends or your your office <laughs> so like any modeling study you need to have some good sort of baseline data to to base this on and um obviously you need to then have a model about behavior change and, and everything but Let's start with that baseline data. If we look at the the sugar content of food, the, what we were talking about there, where is the data from that coming from, and how kind of granular is it? Can we work out what different households have? How do we know what people are actually eating? Yeah. So for this study, we combined two high quality uh, data sets. The the first one is the the Kanta Fast Moving Consumer Goods Database. Uh, and the second one is the uh, National Diet and Nutrition uh, Survey uh, from Public Health England. So to, to uh, start with the Kanta data, this is a, a database um, uh, which uses uh, consumer panels. Uh, so people that um, um, uh, sign, sign up or um, uh, are volunteers to um, send Kanta um Everything basically that they've purchased at uh, uh, retail outlets, at supermarkets, etc., corner shops, um, and uh, Kanta helps them with uh, registering um, uh, each of those foods that they bring home uh, on the database. Uh, this could be done, for example, by having them scan certain barcodes or take pictures and send those pictures through to the databases uh, of uh, of uh, Kanta. Um, and at the same time, they also do a lot of research, looking at what exactly is in those in the foods that people have brought home. Uh, what is the nutritional content? And and for this study, of course, we were mostly interested in sugar uh, content of uh, certain uh, certain foods. And so, um, um, I believe twice a year uh, they go out to uh, retail outlets, to supermarkets, to update the database so that uh, it's it remains a high quality, up to date database of all foods that people consume in the UK or uh, I would say nearly all foods that people consume in the UK and their accurate uh, nutritional um, uh, compositions. That's that's incredible data then. That must be an enormous database considering the amount of choice that we have in these uh, supermarkets Absolutely, now. yeah. And uh, th- they also have an incredible amount of number of households in, in there, uh, which are also representative for the UK. So they've taken a lot of care about um, building this database. Uh, of course, uh, we uh, bought the data from uh, from uh, from Kanta. They are not collecting it for <laughs> us, uh, uh, but they do use it themselves, of course, also for marketing pur- uh, uh, purposes uh, and, and pricing in, in supermarkets. Uh, interesting. So supermarkets have an idea of what the population's eating and they can uh, adjust their things. Yeah, and how they respond. So so, uh, the the database is ideal to uh, estimate uh, price elasticity. So that means if prices of certain 
uh, food uh, increase, what does that do, or decrease perhaps, what does that do with the uh, purchase behaviour of the consumers? Uh, and you can stratify that even by income group or by region, for for example, so you would really know what happens if there is a, a, a sudden or a gradual increase in price of certain products. And so we use that data to do exactly that, to look at uh, what would happen if we uh, increase the price of uh, these selected sugary snacks uh, by 20%, uh, and how would then uh, people in low, middle and high income households uh, and uh, uh, households where the main shopper um, uh, is being classified as uh, non-overweight, overweight or obese, how would they respond in terms of their purchase behaviour to such a price increase? Wow, the, that's... the. Uh it's incredibly rich data, and I didn't realize it was the same data that you that supermarkets and everyone else was using to, to do the, the same thing. We know how sophisticated <laughs> they are with their marketing. So um, the other thing in this uh, that you've got is some data on BMI. Is that the other data set that you were talking about there? Yeah, exactly. So... Um, uh, although there is BMI information uh, in the Kanta uh, database as well, this is self-reported. And because we wanted to uh, make this model as accurate as, uh, as possible, we decided to uh, look at uh, price elasticities and, and changes in energy purchase in the Kanta database, but then use it to project that on uh, the also representative or nationally representative database of N NDNS. Uh, to, to look at what that then uh, would do in terms of uh, um, changes in BMI and obesity pre prevalence in the UK population. Uh, the, the BMI information in NDNS is, uh, is measured by, mm. uh, by the NDNS team uh, and so not self-reported and therefore uh, most probably uh, less likely to be prone to buyers or under-reporting or misreporting in any way. Mm. And is that very complete data or do they take a sort of representative sample from the population to get BMI? Uh, the database of NDNS itself is, is representative um, to the extent that they um, um, assign weights uh, to the database, to each of the individuals that are taking part in um, in their in their study or are part of the the NDNS survey, uh, so you uh, with those weights you could then uh, calculate a, a representative uh, mean, for example, of a sub uh, group or the total UK population. Hmm. Now, a couple of times in there, you mentioned these elasticities, um, these kind of ways in which people behave that changes for an external thing like price. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about them? Where do do elasticities come from? Is that a an economic modelling thing or, or is it used elsewhere? Yeah, so the, uh, the model that we use to calculate our price elasticities is called the almost ideal demand system. Uh, and that is something that is used in lots of um, e uh, economic studies or behavioural uh, studies looking at um, uh, price elasticities or consumer behaviour. Mm. And how does that actually work? Does it sort of link things in a, a, a very close way or is it, uh, I, I don't know, uh, sorry. Yeah, so to use the, the system, um, you would need a database such as Kanta, uh, where um, there is actual data of um, uh, of purchase behaviour of a, of a larger group of, uh, of people uh, that um, buy different products, that pay different prices for it, uh, perhaps over time uh, experience uh, differences in or changes in, in that, uh, that price uh, and altogether then that would uh, form a data set that you could use to calculate your price elasticities of uh, specific uh, products with. 
Uh, and then in addition to um, uh, calculating price elasticities of demand for the high sugar foods that we um, uh, that we were interested in, uh, the system also allows you to uh, calculate a cross price elasticity. So that means that if, for example, uh, the price of confectionery would go up uh, by 20%, uh, you would purchase less of that. Would you substitute it for something else? Would you then buy uh, something else sweet, maybe a juice? Uh, would you buy a piece of fruit, for example? Uh, so we also incorporated that in our modeling efforts to uh, calculate the new uh, total energy purchase of a certain family based on that 20 percent change in in price of high sugar snacks mm. and when you're you're getting that elasticity and working out is that a sort of a general trend that you can look at or can you actually say that you know a three percent price increase will lead to a 0.2 percent reduction in in purchase is it you know how kind of yeah so that's the the outcome of the uh, of of such a model of course uh, um uh, with a certain uncertainty so you get a best estimate of what you think uh, uh such a price um elasticity might look like um for each of the products that you're interested in uh, uh but it comes with a um a confidence interval and uncertainty interval around that estimate yeah so we have then all this data and quite a rich model uh, of how that's going to affect consumer behaviour. Um, and what you've done with this that's, that's different is, that the supermarkets wouldn't be doing, is um, comp- you know looking at that total energy intake and what that might do to, to BMI. So when you sort of plug this all together, when you crunch the data, what did you, what did you find out? How much would a... 20% price increase on high sugar snacks actually change the yeah. MI of the nation. So one of the new things that we um, did in this particular study is uh, uh, um, to also look at differences between BMI groups. So uh, there were quite a few studies looking at um, purchase behaviour between income groups, uh, but we also specifically looked at BMI groups because we were interested in these uh, products that uh, have high high content of uh, free sugars, uh, are a problem if it comes to their contribution to, uh, to obesity. So we also split up our database into three uh, uh, different groups based on 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 BMI values of the of the population. So the non-overweight, which is um, uh, people that have a normal BMI or are, are underweight, uh, the overweight ones, and the uh, obese, um, uh, the households classified as obese. So what what we did uh, find out is that uh, price elasticities did vary uh, quite significantly uh, comparing households classified as obese to households classified as overweight or or normal weight. Uh, So you do see that um, if we were to introduce a 20% increase in uh, price of sugary snacks, households classified as obese that also had much higher baseline values of buying high sugar products in in the first place, uh, would be much more effective in bringing down uh, BMI and uh, bringing down the prevalence of obesity. Um, I mean, that's interesting. So you're saying, as well as the the result that you've got, you've also seen that there is a, a correlation between the obesity classification of a household and their their purchase of sugars. Yeah, so we did see that the baseline purchase of high sugar snacks in in households classified as obese uh, was uh, much higher than that in households classified as uh, as non overweight, um, and 
price elasticities were also slightly different. So um, uh, people in the uh, obese um, uh, households classified as obese were a little bit less um, sensitive to, to price increases than uh, uh, people uh, uh, from households classified as non-overweight. Um, uh, however, since they, the baseline purchase was so much higher in those obese households, uh, the overall reduction in terms of uh, calorie purchase after the introduction of a 20% price increase uh, was more significant in those uh, households classified as, as obese. Mm. And in fact, uh, that perhaps is a, is a positive thing because uh, these are the households that are eating uh, the products that we are trying to, to target uh, and uh, obesity um, um, prevalence is one of the adverse health outcomes uh, so that it it does have a uh, more profound effect in these households uh, might from a public health perspective be uh, regarded as something positive. Mm. So what you've seen there is that um, people's behaviour, what they want to eat, obviously makes a difference but then economic factors uh, will, you know, might change that will influence that anyway uh, in a way that could be, you know, positive for public health. Um we're about to enter a period where <laughs> there's a huge amount of kind of uncertainty happening. We don't know what's going to be happening to sort of food prices, other prices, loads of things. So I just wonder against the sort of backdrop of Brexit, <laughs> um, does that kind of throw your model up in the air and, and this won't apply anymore? Or, do you, or is this sort of quite a uh, an established and it? I'm, yeah. Well, it's, of course, very difficult to say what is exactly going to happen after the 31st of, of October. Um, but I don't think it will throw uh, the model completely uh, up in the air. Um, as the price increases of, of uh, high sugar snacks will still uh, change purchase uh, behaviour even after after Brexit. Uh, but what is of course uncertain is what it will do with the uh, price and also the availability of of uh, of any other product that um, uh, that households buy in, in in the supermarket or elsewhere, and uh, why that is really important is also uh, because of the substitution um, um, mechanism. So if price uh, prices of high sugar snacks go up, um, uh, people um, might buy something else in, instead, uh, and. Uh, in this, uh, in the database that we've used, in the price elasticities that we've looked at, um, uh, part of that, for example, is substituted by the purchase of fruits and vegetables. Um, well, you can imagine that Brexit might have an impact on the availability and price of uh, a healthier, a fresh produce, um, and uh, so that substitution towards those kind of products might might uh, um, uh, decrease. Whereas maybe then the uptake of other um, longer shelf life. Uh, uh, cheaper products such as crisps for example might uh, might go up so that's something that we definitely should keep in, uh, in mind in the aftermath of of, of brexit what's happening uh, what's happening with those those kind of mechanisms and mm. availability and prices of, of healthy foods I mean that's interesting though, what you're saying there about the the cost of um, healthy fruits and vegetables and things maybe going up and that could that could change um, patterns because this is another thing that people maybe have a more philosophical uh, objection to, which is, you know, actually taxing people's choices like that. But what is less objected to might be subsidising, mm. you know, healthy choices instead. And I wonder, does, does this sort of 
counterfactual come into play? Would subsidising vegetables do the same? Was that something you were able to kind of look at or, or think about in this? Yes. Um, well, there are a few issues that are quite important there. Uh, one is that, that, of course, fiscal interventions are never popular, uh, but uh, I think history has proven that they are very efficient. It does work, it has a large public health uh, impact, and it, it does have considerable impact on, cons- on consumer behaviour. Um, of course, there is the counterfactual that you, you're mentioning that you could, for example, subsidise uh, fruits and vegetables, which could be healthy alternatives um, uh, to high sugar uh, snacks. Um, however, if you look at the purchase behaviour, and especially if you stratify that by income, uh, it's especially the higher income, um, healthy people that eat larger quantities of fruits and, and vegetables. So if you were to subsidise that, that also raises some ethical concern, uh, because then you you are benefiting the high income healthy people rather than the low income, um, maybe less healthy um, part of the population. So it's just as regressive potentially as uh, the exactly, taxation. Exactly, yeah. Um, and of course, um, buying and, and eating uh, high amounts of free sugar comes with a cost anyway. It's now perhaps hidden in, in um, costs for the NHS, for example, the uh, diet-related chronic diseases that, uh, uh, or the risk on diet-related chronic diseases that might increase by eating uh, an unhealthy amount of, uh, of uh, free sugars. Um, uh, and by introducing a, a tax what you are doing is you're not forbidding people to buy these products, of course, but uh, you do uh, put the threshold up uh, and also um, uh, then the amount of money uh, that they pay on top of their the normal price for their um, high sugar um, uh, snacks is something that uh, should then, of course, be used to contribute towards um, uh, the health care of those that are affected by um, uh, obesity-related diseases such as diabetes, um, cardiovascular diseases, strokes, etc. There's been shenanigans uh, in the UK Parliament about you know, white paper on, on exactly this kind of thing at the moment. So this is some data potentially to, to nudge politicians yeah. uh, over the line a little bit. Yeah, I think it's it's obviously a model, and and as any study you you might conduct, models come with their their limitations. Uh, but if you, for example, look at um, introduction of the soft drink industry um, levy. Um, Evidence was there, uh, uh, but it's only now when uh, studies, I think, of the, the early adapters of, of, uh, of uh, sugar sweetened beverage uh, tax or, or any fiscal intervention around, around that are showing some uh, results and some actual evidence in the, in the, in the population. But if you, if you look back at when it was introduced in 2018, ever since, uh, people are much more aware of the fact that uh, there, uh, there are large quantities of sugar in, in those drinks. Uh, um, uh, it led to because it was a two-tiered nature of of uh, this this levy where, whereby you had to pay higher um, a tax on on uh, drinks that were uh, above eight grams uh, of sugar per hundred uh, millimeters and and a lower uh, band of tax for five grams and higher uh, per hundred milliliters. Um, uh, led to like a, a a lot of efforts in reformulation of uh, of certain uh, certain drinks. So that was um, something that, of course, um, researchers and policymakers had, uh, had in mind, uh, but was something that uh, perhaps went beyond the expectations of uh, of those that initially developed the um, uh, 
the idea of the soft drink industry levy. So nudging consumers to nudge uh, manufacturers in turn. As well, yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, it was only in the aftermath of the uh, the introduction of the, the soft drink industry levy uh, that we saw uh, what a massive impact it had in behaviour change um, uh, because of um, consumers changing their behaviour, because of consumers now buying more light uh, products and, of course, because of this ref- reformulation. Uh, so I don't think we always have to, uh, to wait for... Um, experimental studies and and having uh, completely waterproof evidence to to take action because it's a very important public health uh, problem that we need to address urgently. So you've been listening to Pauline Shilby talk about her article Potential Impact on Prevalence of Obesity in the UK of a 20% Price Increase in High Sugar Snacks, a modelling study. That's now available on bmj.com and as always I'll link in the podcast text now that's it for this episode but we'll be back next week with more on brexit so who knows what's going to happen between now and then so you better subscribe to make sure you don't get distracted and miss out as always we're in all of the places that you would usually get podcasts from now if you have any questions about the health implications of brexit then we can put those to the experts for you Go to bmj.com slash podcasts and there you can find out how to get in touch with us. Until next week, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.